I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started. We have a lot of ground to cover, which is going to be kind of a theme as we do this. Covering a narrative means we've got to attack big chunks of Scripture. That's definitely going to be the case next week. Uh, not just an entire chapter, but chapters. Uh, this week we've got a whole chapter to look at. So let me pray, and we'll look at Exodus chapter 4. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for giving us life and breath this morning. Uh, not just physically, but spiritually, that your mercies are new every morning, that you have called us as men to walk um, worthy of the calling that you have given us, that you have indeed called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, not that we would hoard that light to ourselves, that we might proclaim the excellencies of you and to give you glory. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us something about our calling, that you would continue this discussion from last week about weakness, but this morning that we would see that the reality is is we are imperfect and you are perfect. And though we try to so often get the glory in this life, uh, it is a futile attempt. And the reality is that all of this is for your glory and our good. And may we see that reality this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 4. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to begin with. We're going to look at just chunks. And uh, that's how we're going to kind of proceed. At your table, you'll see the handout. Uh, the four chunks we're going to look, look at have a little bold title. And those are going to be kind of our four main points this morning. And so you can follow along that way. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, before we get to that though, I want to, I want to begin this way. I, I was ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America uh, almost three years ago, was ordained in the Baptist church before that, so I'm doubly covered, which is pretty cool. Uh, my first sermon at PCPC as an ordained pastor was around that time, and, and when I preached that sermon, my wife uh, took a picture of it and uh, put it up on Instagram, which is uh, on the interwebs for you older guys, so it's in- Instagram, okay? So Instagram, she put it on Instagram with this caption, This is what she put. She put, the Lord uses imperfect people to preach a perfect gospel. Now, some of you are already chuckling because you already know where my mind went. The Lord uses imperfect people to preach a perfect gospel. And this is my wife reflecting honestly, truly. This is my wife reflecting on the grace of God in our life, which is absolutely true. Uh, Something that we have experienced time and time again already in our life is uh, the grace of God in our life. And in fact, one of her favorite verses, that in from his fullness we've received grace upon grace. Uh, grace in a place already given. And so, obviously, if you think about that sentence, the Lord calls imperfect people. Uh, who's the subject? The Lord. Now, some of you who started to chuckle, I, I didn't see it that way at first. There was a word that stuck out to me. A word that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. What word do you think that was? Imperfect. And I begin to think, well, what was imperfect? Was my sermon imperfect? No. No, because it was perfect. It was awesome. (laughs) Maybe she was talking about me. Maybe I'm the one who's not perfect. Oh, oh, Jenny, don't, don't tell everybody on the internet that I'm not perfect. See, the reality is, is she's absolutely right, isn't she? The Lord uses imperfect people to preach a perfect gospel. Why? Because it's all about His glory. 
from start to finish. It's all about his glory. But the problem as men that we have with that truth, and I think every one of us in this room knows that that is absolutely true this morning, is deep down, you and I are glory thieves. We want to rob the glory that is due to God, and we want it for ourselves. And so to begin this morning, I thought what I might do real quickly is tell you how I have done that systematically, pretty much since the Lord called me to himself. And before that, I suppose before that I was a pagan and I have an excuse, but now as a believer, I've tried to rob God from his glory. I was called as his son, uh, converted late in high school. I had struggled uh, with the reality of God and became a, a, a rejecter of the faith. I grew up in the Lutheran church, rejected all of it, rejected the church, rejected uh, not just Christianity, but the belief in God at all. Um, And God uses, and I won't get into that story, but God used a series of things to draw me to himself and to, like in an instant, almost like C.S. Lewis says, just like that, I believed. And it wasn't shortly thereafter in college, as a pre-med student, that God, I sensed this call to full-time ministry. Now, of course, because I thought this was all about me and under my control, I dropped out of the pre-med program and made sure that I had no prerequisites to ever go to med school again because I thought that this was my sacrifice to the Lord, right? This is what I do as a radical Christian. I'm not going to go to med school, right? So any of you doctors here know how just twisted that is. Obviously, you can glorify God through that. So I, I, I... in, in that way of control, I didn't do that and begin to pursue this, this calling that I sensed to full-time ministry. In those days, it had to do with music. So any of you who have seen me do music at any time know that uh, I have a past in music. And at the, a young age of 23, became the worship director at a uh, church in Frisco, Texas called Providence Church. It's an X-29 church. And um, part of that was even an exercise in pride. Uh, in two ways. One, the reason why I want to do music is because I didn't like church music and I wanted to change it. I'm not kidding. Uh, that, was, that was the first thing that was an exercise of pride. The second was I had a friend. I was trying to decide if I should go to seminary or not, and this is what he said to me. He said, go pro. Skip it. Go pro. Make sense? Just like I would skip, just like a basketball kid would skip college and go straight to the NBA. And I love that idea. Oh, I don't need it. I don't need it. What's seminary going to teach me that I don't already know? I was an arrogant, prideful, controlling person. And it just about wrecked me at a young age in ministry. Until about a couple years into being the worship director of this church, I believe God gave me a picture, a vision of who I was at the age of 50. And not only was I not doing ministry anymore, but I wasn't walking with Jesus. And I began to see that my life was on this trajectory that was all about me and not about him, all about what I was going to do for him, all of which I was kind of chalking up. This is all about Jesus, but it wasn't. It was all about me. And really, here was the rub. I wanted the glory. I wanted the credit. When the dust settled, I wanted to be the one standing. God uses imperfect people for His perfect glory. And that is not just a promise. 
a demand. He will not allow, by His grace, He will not allow us to get the glory. And sometimes by His grace, He wrecks us. And we're going to see that in the life of Moses in some different ways, particularly later as he leads his people through the wilderness. But on this side, we continue this theme from last week where we see that Moses has been given this call from God, this deep calling. And and as a man called by God, that calling utterly exposes him. And so this morning, I wonder, do you think of your life as a calling? And what does that do for you? To think of your life as being called by God. Do you find yourself, perhaps like I was, thinking this is about you, about what you're going to do for Him? Or perhaps this morning you find yourself like Moses and you hate thinking about it that way because if you do, kind of like Isaiah, you're utterly exposed. God uses imperfect people for His perfect glory. And this morning we're going to see this in four ways. This juxtaposition of Moses' life between his imperfection, his insufficiency, his brokenness, and God's perfection. God's sufficiency. God's grace. And then ultimately we're going to see that really all of this comes down to one thing. God is going to use Moses for His glory. For his glory. And in that way, Moses, while we look to him as a hero of the faith, and he certainly is, the ultimate hero of his story is the God behind Moses. This God who uses imperfect people for his perfect glory. And so let's dive in. This is Exodus 4, verse 1. The first way that we see this is that we are weak and God is strong. And this is what we talked about last week. And so I don't want to spend too much time on this point, but only to reiterate this theme of weakness and strength, that Moses is weak, lest you, again, have this perception of him, this Charlton Heston-like perception of this total, strong-in-himself type of guy, that Moses was a weak man. And in particular, in this part, this section, we see weakness in one way, is leadership. He did not see himself as a strong leader. And so we see this in Exodus 4, verse 1. It says, Moses answered. So this is in response to God's call in his life to go and to lead the people out of Egypt. He says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say the Lord did not appear to you. So he's wrestling with this. He's fearful. Saying they're not going to listen to me. They're going to say, well, no, God didn't appear to you. Who are you? Who are you that we should follow you? He is fearful, he is exposed, he is aware of his lack of his ability to lead people. But this morning, as I mentioned, I want to, uh, we, we talked so much about weakness last week that I think we understand that. Instead, I want to focus real briefly on God's response to Moses' weakness here in this section, that he's strong. And, Moses, and, and God gives Moses three signs, three signs that are meant to be a show of God's strength over Egypt, but also a show of God's strength over Moses as well. And these are the three signs. First sign is a staff that turns into a serpent. Look with me. Uh, verse 2, it says, the Lord says to him, what's that in your hand? He says, a staff. 
And he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground, and it became a serpent. And then I love the next phrase. And you'd do it too. Moses ran from it. So, so again, this picture. I mean, I want you to picture Moses for who he really is from the Scriptures. This is a man who God, he has a staff in his hand, and God says, throw it to the ground, and comes a serpent, and he runs from it. This isn't a guy who just stood there and he was like, well, I'll just tack it. No, he ran from it. And I, I pro- you'd do the same thing. You would do the same thing for probably a lot of reasons. One, it was a snake. But the second thing is, it wasn't a snake about five seconds before. God is trying to demonstrate to Moses who is in charge. He's trying to help him to recognize that Moses... This isn't about you. And what you you have to recognize this morning is pride takes a lot of forms. You can be an incredibly prideful person and yet be a coward. You see, in its essence, pride is being self-centered. It's thinking that every single thing is about you. And you can either do that like I was, a prideful person, honestly, because I was insecure I was trying to make up for something that I thought I didn't have. Like a guy who drives a giant truck. That's, no, that's not a knock at anybody here if you drive a giant truck. But we do that, don't we? We try to make up for our insecurities, right? That's one way to do this. We try to have bigger things. A big house, a big bank account, a big job, all of this to try to mask, to somehow compensate that deep down we recognize that we are insecure. Or, like in this moment we see Moses, you could be a prideful person and that you think it's all about you and that scares you so much that you're afraid. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily arrogance, but it's still pride. Because Moses thought it was all about him and that's why he was scared. How am I going to do this? And God's point is, you're not. I am. And let me show you what that's going to look like. He turns the staff into a serpent. Now, the serpent, the cobra, was very important to the Egyptian religion and their way of thinking. In so many ways, you can see this as a symbol, a sign of the religion in Egypt that God is stronger than this stronghold of religion, of pagan religion, in Egypt, that he lords over that, even that, even the God of Ra, right? Even Pharaoh, who calls himself a god. God is stronger than that. But it's not just a, a staff and a serpent. He goes on, uh, he says, well, Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And he became a staff in his hand. And I like to think maybe this was just the beginning of Moses recognizing where the power came from. Would you have done that? It's one thing to try to kill a snake with a, you know, garden hoe or something from far away, or a gun. It's another thing to grab it by the tail while it's still alive. Moses is beginning to see that God is commanding him to do things. He grabs this thing by the tail, it turns back into a staff, All for what? Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Why am I doing this? That they would see me, God is saying. 
That's the staff. Then he goes on, verse 6, he says again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside a cloak. He puts a hand inside a cloak. He took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand back in the cloak. And he put his hand back inside the cloak. And we took it out. Behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Leprosy, a disease that was rampant in Egypt. A plague before the plagues. God's powerful even over that. God is even stronger than their religion. He's stronger than their disease. The third sign. Verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign that they may believe the latter sign. If they did not believe even these two signs, listen to your voice and you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The Nile was their economy. Right? It was everything for them. It was their source of life in so many ways, from ways to travel, to export, to the fish in it, to the way that it fertilized uh, and became uh, fertile ground uh, for them to raise crops. It was the Egyptian economy. God is powerful even over that. A display to the Israelite people and to Moses. Who's in charge? So men, this morning I ask you, who is in charge of your life? Do you recognize God's charge over you? That He has ordained you. He has called you by name, first as a son. And now He has called you to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How? Do you see your life as a calling Are you a glory thief? Like Moses, are you prideful? Does this pride come out in insecurity like it did for Moses? Or are you trying to mask it in some way? We are weak. God is strong. It's His glory, not ours. That's the first point. Second, our words are feeble. God's word is true. Our words are feeble. God's word are true. Okay, so Moses continues trying to run away from his calling. And maybe some of you have done that before. Maybe you're doing that right now. Moses at first did not want to do what God asked him to do. Exodus uh, 4 verse 10 says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And, And many people have tried to decipher what was going on here. I do like to think that perhaps it's kind of like this king speech. Have you seen that movie? It was a phenomenal movie uh, about King George who had a stutter. He was a stammerer. And you imagine if you're a king uh, and that is your whole role is to be a public speaker and yet you have a speech impediment, what that must be like. And here Moses likely has some kind of speech impediment. He's a stutterer. He's a stammerer. He's not eloquent. So he's saying, well, a leader must be eloquent and God, I can't do that. I can't even speak right. And here's God's response to that. And I love, I mean, again, you need to put it all together. This is after God has shown Moses three signs of his power. So Moses sees this and he still does not see how he's going to do this. And so, again, God's trying to help him to see, you are not Moses. You are not going to do this. I'm going to do this through you. So verse 11, the Lord says to him, well, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? 
Now therefore go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And I love this. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The detail in this narrative. Remember in the very first chapter, we don't see much of God directly. It's indirect. In this chapter, it's every detail. Not just what God is saying, but that God now is starting to become angry. Because Moses is disobedient because he's so self-centered. He's so focused on himself, he can't see past his own weakness, his own lack of ability to speak well. So he says, please send someone else. And says, the Lord kindled against Moses and said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, and you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Our words are feeble. His word is true. Moses who would eventually write down the very words of God on stone tablets. God revealing His word directly to Moses. God revealing His word directly to Moses that resulted in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. God's word, not Moses' words. God's word. His truth. Moses did not yet recognize that this is, again, all about God. And this morning I ask you, a way that this can play out in your life is not just in the way that you look at yourself and your insecurity, but how do you attack things? How do you go out problems in your life? From large to small, how do you make decisions? How do you try to do whatever it is that you are called to do? Do you find yourself relying out of your own wisdom, out of your own eloquence or lack thereof, your own reason, your own decision-making skills, or do you rely on the Word of God? Another way to ask the question is this. What role does the Word of God play in your life? Not just do you read it. That's important. It's very important. But is it central? Is it foundational? As Presbyterians, we believe that the Word of God is our only rule, the only infallible rule for our faith and practice. It is everything to us, right? Sola Scriptura. Not just do you believe it. Well, that's everything. But does it orient everything in your life? Is it central? Is it foundational? And perhaps the bigger question for us this morning is do you submit to it? Not try to rely on your own ability, your own reason, your own rational, your own words, but the Word of God. We see here, all the way early in the book of Exodus, this picture of God's power, His sufficiency, in His speech, not ours. In His Word, not 
ours. A, a couple verses for you to think about this morning. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Last time we, we talked so much in Romans about our sin and the reality that our sin is before us. How can you stay pure in this life as a man? The psalmist says, by guarding it according to the word. Hebrews 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's part of the submission part. To truly read the word is to allow the word to read you, to pierce you, to divide you open, to be exposed. Third point this morning about his perfection, our imperfection. We are faithless. God is faithful. This is where our, our story turns a little bit. From signs to what happens directly after signs. This is Moses beginning his journey back to Egypt. This is Moses beginning to follow the call on his life. The story, the way it's told, uh, skips some amount of time, and we're not sure exactly. And it, it, we, we come upon a fascinating story in verse 24, but before we get there, look at verse 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him... Now, if you remember, Moses was married, and he was married to the daughter of a Midianite priest, Jethro. She's, uh, you know, the way she grew up is also not the way he grew up, and the way he grew up was also not the way the Israelites grew up. Neither one of them did, and that's going to become important. Yes, Moses was a Hebrew, but he was raised by Egyptians, and he marries a Midianite. That's going to become very important. So he goes to Jethro, and he says, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro says to Moses, Go in peace. Okay, so he takes his family. Now the Lord goes to Moses and says, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. There's nothing to fear. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. The miracles I have put in your power, I'm commanding you to do this. Why? I want you now to show Pharaoh who I am, that I am powerful. I am the God over disease. I am the God over religion. I am the God over the Nile. When you go to Egypt, do these signs, but... Listen to what he says. Before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I have put in your power. And then he says this. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And we'll talk more about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart later. We don't have time to get into it now. But I want to introduce it to you. God's sovereignty. God's power. As the song says and was quoted on Sunday morning by Derek Thomas, God moves in mysterious ways. And here God is telling Moses, I'm exercising my authority even over Pharaoh. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to soften his heart so that he's just going to let you go. I'm going to harden it. And 
the question that you should be wrestling with right now is why? Why would he do that? The short answer, for his glory. We'll get into that more as we see Pharaoh's heart become harder and harder and harder in the weeks to come. God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I wonder what Moses, when he heard that, he's like, well, what am I going there for then? <laughs> it's going to harden his heart. What are we doing here? Nevertheless, he goes, right? He goes. And this is what he says. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. The second thing I want you to notice about this as we get to verse 24. Israel is God's firstborn son. He's remembering his covenant that he made with Abraham. This calling of the people of Israel. The promise that he made to Abraham that they would go to the promised land. And he's saying, Israel is my firstborn son. I'm remembering my covenant. And he says, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So real quickly, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, so some kind of hotel or place to stay, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. If you're following the narrative, this is, should be jarring to you. It was to me. And I have a couple questions real quickly to ask yourself as you read this. The first is, well, who's the him? It's kind of unclear. I think the first him is probably Moses. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Well, why? I thought we just called Moses. What are we doing? God, what are you doing? And then we learn what the deal is. Verse 25, then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me. All right, so it just got even weirder. (laughs) What's going on now? Wait, so, so God's calling Moses. Now he wants to kill him. And then what just happened? All right, a couple things real quickly. The second his, uh, I have after Moses in, in kind of italics and parentheses, the word his. Uh, the Hebrew text does not say the word Moses. This is the translator making a choice for you. I don't think this was Moses' feet. And you could make an argument that it was. I think this was his son's feet. And by feet, I don't mean feet, if you know what I mean. It's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for his genitals. And what we are seeing is just a detailed description of a ritual circumcision. Now, why would God put that here at this time in this place? Here's why. Moses, a Hebrew, who's about to lead the Hebrews, did not circumcise his own kid. And that's a problem. Why? Because God commanded the people of Israel to circumcise their sons as a sign of the covenant. Moses was not faithful. Moses was disobedient with his own family. In many ways, you could say God called a man whose house was not in order. It describes you, and that describes me, doesn't it? We're faithless. We know, I mean, real quickly, we've got to wrap up here, but we know that the Egyptians practiced partial circumcision, and the book of Joshua calls it an abomination. And we don't know that's what's going on here, but likely Moses raised in Egypt, maybe partially circumcised his son. He had allowed the culture that he was in to influence the way that he thought about his religion, not the other way around. And doesn't that describe us? What does it mean to be a faithful man in a faithless culture? What does it mean that God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful? And we see this here. 
She says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Literally, you are a blood relative to me. So he let him alone. God leaves him alone. It's his grace, right? It's his faithfulness. It's him remembering the covenant. He's his faithful people. And all of this leads to the very last verse. Look with me verse, real quickly at verse 31. The people believed, and when they heard the Lord and visited the people of Israel, that they had seen their infliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. All of this eventually leads to the worship of the people of God. Not Moses. Not bowing down before Moses, but worshiping God. It's His glory, not ours. As John says, we must decrease, He must increase. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. My prayer for you this morning is you'd recognize God uses imperfect people for His perfect glory. Father, be with us now. Be with us as we go to our tables. Help us to wrestle with these realities. Help us to see them as grace, because they are. We thank you that you use us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.